0: Good morning. Glad to be here with you today. Hope you're having a good uh, start to your holiday weekend. I would echo everything Rick said. I'm thankful for the nation that we live in, for the freedom that we have, the freedom to do things like this, uh, and may that cause us to think on and, uh, and pray for uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ that are in very different circumstances today doing the same thing that we're doing, gathering together and worshiping God uh, under very different circumstances. And may that remind us that our greatest freedom doesn't come from a country Our greatest freedom comes from Jesus. Amen? Amen. Awesome. Well, I'm a a history buff. I love diving into history because I'm fascinated with how people even survived. If you know anything about me, I like comfort. (laughs) And so I would not do well before they made air conditioning. Uh, My wife and I recently went through a a TV show that was on the Oregon Trail, and it was about 10 minutes into that, and I looked at Julie, and I said, Julie, I would be dead. I wouldn't be able to do it. I can't live that way, but it fascinates me. I'm fascinated with how people made tough decisions, how they they went through their days, and frankly, just how they survived. And I recently came across the story of a missionary that I want to share with you today as we dive back into our series on Colossians, Mary Slessor is the missionary. She was born in 1848 in the slums of Aberdeen, Scotland. Growing up incredibly poor and navigating life with an alcoholic father taught Mary to live life with this incredible grit and resilience that would serve her well in the missionary field. She was inspired by the life of uh, the, the great missionary David Livingstone. And so at the age of 28, Mary set out as a single woman, no husband, no family support, to her first missionary assignment in Calabar, which is near the, uh, the southern coast of Nigeria. And there were two main issues that she faced in her missionary journey. First is that she was a single woman in a culture that thought of women as lesser. And so not, not only did Mary Slessor face criticism from the people that she ministered to, but she also faced criticism from her family and friends that she was leaving in Scotland. They would tell her, Mary, you're... You're just a woman. You can't go by yourself to Africa. It's dangerous. Listen to Mary's response. When you think of the woman's power, you forget the power of the woman's God. I shall go on. (laughs) I love that. The other main issue facing Mary and other missionaries was the superstitions that were in the various tribes. So in parts of Africa, like Nigeria, there was this myth that had kind of been passed down that if you had twins born into your family, that it was a bad sign or an omen from the gods that destruction would come upon your village. And so if you gave birth to twins, they would either kill them outright or they would leave them in the wild for the animals to feed on. And so what did Mary do? Well, she began to either adopt them herself into her single mom family, or she would take them to local clinics and hospitals and shelters. Mary Slessor alone is credited with saving the lives of hundreds of infants in Calabar and the surrounding area. After uh, a few years, Mary contracted malaria and was forced to go back to uh, Scotland to recover. But as soon as she recovered, she returned to Calabar and ministered to the people there. And for 40 years, Mary Slessor lived in Nigeria and shared Jesus with the people around her. She struggled with her health for the rest of her life because she had malaria. She would often get different fevers and sicknesses but she would, uh, she would persevere. And eventually she grew too weak to even walk to the different villages that she would minister to. So she asked her friends to place her in a handcart and push her through the jungle so that she could go to different villages and share the gospel. Mary Slessor eventually contracted a severe fever and passed away in January of 1915. And as I was reading about Mary's life, I came across these, uh, these quotes that she had written down in her journal and in her Bible. And if you know me, I'm a big quote guy. I love a good quote. I call them butt-kicking quotes. It's a quote that kicks my butt. It convicts me. It sits in my brain, and it makes me think about things. And I want to share some of Mary's butt-kicking quotes with you. Uh, This one's one of my favorites. The task is impossible for me, but not for thee. Lead the way, and I will follow. And and listen to this one. Listen to the, the burden in this. Lord, I thank thee that I can bring these people thy word. But Lord, there are villages back in the jungle where no man has gone and they need Jesus too. Help me reach them. Can you hear that struggle in Mary's writings? I share Mary lesser story with you because as we jump back into Colossians and we read through this letter from Paul, I think you will be able to sense the same burden and struggle in Paul's voice as he writes. Uh, because we took a break from the series uh, to bring us back up to speed, when we last left off in Colossians, we talked about the supremacy of Jesus. Do you remember that? That was Jake's message about two weeks ago. If you don't remember it, it's Jake's fault, not mine. But Paul, in, this, in, in leading up to this in Colossians 1, Paul says that Jesus was the image of the invisible God, that Jesus is the firstborn of creation, meaning that Jesus is in this position of authority over everything. And that same Jesus, who is that great ruler also takes on the incredibly personal and individualistic role of reconciling you to God. And that's where we left off in Colossians 1. So we're going to pick up today at Colossians 1, starting at verse 24. You can have your Bibles, or if you have the North Point app, it's all there too. It'll also be on the screens. Uh, And as we read through this, I want you to compare and contrast and see if you can pick up on the Apostle Paul and his story and Mary Slessor and her experience in Nigeria. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now, if you're looking at this passage, if you're looking at the full passage, if you have your Bible, if you have the North Point app, can you look through that and see the burden that Paul has? He says he suffers for the sake of the church, that he is toiling and struggling so that the church would know Jesus. You know, I read through this, as, it's as if you could take that last quote that we read from Mary Slessor. Lord, I thank that I can bring the word to these people, but there's people in the jungle that don't know Jesus. Help me reach them. But what's interesting here is that Paul rejoices in the burden that he carries. Paul says he rejoices in his sufferings for the sake of the church. You see, Paul understands that his suffering is not without purpose. It's not random So in every ounce of suffering and discomfort and pain, Paul can see the purpose behind it. And the purpose is the church, the building up of the church. And Paul says this interesting thing in verse 24, that that his suffering is filling what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the church. What What does that mean? What's Paul saying? What Paul is saying here is that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are destined to suffer Because you are identified with the suffering servant, Jesus. And if you are called to be made like Jesus, you will be made like Jesus in every way. And for us, right here and right now, suffering is a part of that process. But we rejoice because to suffer for Christ means that you suffer with Christ. Amen? You don't suffer isolated, You are not alone. You are not isolated in a vacuum away from Jesus or away from the body of Christ. Everything you experience, you experience with Jesus at your side. And because Jesus is at your side, he guarantees that every ounce of suffering that comes your way will be put toward making you more like him. And for us, that's good news. And as we move to verse 25, Paul says that he became a minister of that good news according to the stewardship from God. You kind of get this picture of Paul being given managerial oversight over the church, over the mission of the church. He's overseeing and evaluating and executing the main mission of the church, which is to bring the message of God to the world. But as you bring the message of God to the world, what do you teach people? Right? You just tell them that God exists. Well, Paul gives us the answer in verse 26 and 27. This section here starts off with the word mystery. And right there, we need to stop and clarify and correct our modern American brains because when we hear the word mystery, we think, oh, it's unsolved mysteries time, or it's Scooby Doo, or it's Nancy Drew, or, you know, I put my keys in the same place every day and they disappear. It's a mystery where my keys are. But that's not what it means in the context of the Bible. In this ancient culture, they would not have understood mystery to be this unsolvable problem. You see, a mystery in the context of the Bible is something that was hidden, it was partially understood, but now you have the answer. Now it's clear. Something was hidden, and now it's revealed. So, what was the great mystery that used to be hidden? It used to be partially understood, but now Paul says it's clear. Surprise, it's Jesus. You see, we like to think that in the Bible there are these hidden secret nuggets of truth that we are meant to be detectives and uncover. We, we come across a, a term like this where Paul says there's a mystery and we're like, oh man, we're gonna put on our Sherlock Holmes caps and we're gonna be detectives today. We're figuring it out. But Paul explains all of it in a few words. The whole thing is explained. There's no more detective work to do. And here's why that's good for us. Because God is not in the business of hiding himself from you. God does not keep secrets from you. God does not take secrets of himself and keep it for only the super wise and the super educated amongst the church. The answer is Jesus. And that's actually one of the false teachings that was circulating the church at the time. It was called Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word Gnostic, which is where we get the word knowledge. And so the thought in Gnosticism was that there was this secret knowledge that you could unlock. And the more knowledge that you unlock, the holier you become. And Paul looks at that false gospel and says, no, (laughs) the answer is Jesus, period. If you know Jesus, you know everything. If you don't know Jesus, you know nothing. It's as simple as that. And Paul is so confident in the simplicity of the answer being Jesus that he actually warns the church in the next verse about false teaching. Now, the false teaching in Colossae might not have been Gnosticism specifically, but there's something about this section that prompts Paul to warn the church. In verse 28, Paul says that we proclaim the mystery, we proclaim the answer of Jesus to everyone, warning everyone and teaching them so that they may be mature in Christ, so it would seem that whatever this false teaching was, that it questioned the fullness of your inclusion in Christ unless you could demonstrate some extra knowledge. We'll dig into more of that later, but this warning that Paul gives the church is a seed that is planted and grows throughout the rest of the passage. And in warning the church here, Paul uses some specific language. He says, We are to proclaim the good news and warn who? Just the Jews? Just the people going to church. Paul says three times everyone, every single person, that's God's com- commission to Paul, to the church, and to you. No one is to go through life having not heard the name and message of Jesus Christ. Everybody, your neighbors, your coworkers, your extended family members, your roommates, your kids, your friends, your barista, your cashier at your classmates, your small group, illegal immigrants, protesters, abortion advocates, gun rights advocates, Republicans, Democrats, independents, even Ohio State fans. <laughs> even Ohio State fans. <laughs> There is not a single person on earth who is excluded from the Great Commission for us to reach with the loving and life giving message of Jesus Christ. That's what Mary Slessor did in Nigeria. She brought Jesus to the world. But when we bring the Word of God to people, what do we say? What do we teach the Ohio State fan that needs to meet Jesus? Paul says that we teach with all wisdom. What does that mean? Well, if I can can reach ahead in our series, Paul actually unpacks this more in Colossians 3. So if I can reach ahead and pull a snippet from Colossians 3, Paul says that all wisdom flows from the word of Christ. So how do we begin to unpack the riches of God's glory? It must start with the word of God. Because God's word is the only thing promised by God to never fail. And here's why that should comfort us. Because we can mess up as we interact with people. We can speak wrongly and we can speak harshly. It is impossible for God's word to mess up. God's word cannot speak wrongly or harshly. And so we teach people, both the people who don't know Jesus and the people who do know Jesus, with God's word for the main purpose of making them mature in Christ. Now again, just like with the word mystery, we need to clarify what we mean by mature. Because when we hear the word mature, we think like, oh, it's like a, like a high schooler that works really hard and he doesn't make inappropriate jokes. That's not what Paul means by mature, right? Like when I was growing up, I had, uh, uh, in high school, I had people come up to me at church and say, Mark, you're so mature. First of all, I was homeschooled. I was mature by the time I was seven. It was a requirement. Secondly, I wasn't really mature. I was manipulative. I knew the right thing to say and the right thing to avoid saying. That's not real maturity. So what does Paul mean when he says that you are to be made mature in Christ? Well, here's an interesting dot that I think we can connect. The same word that Paul uses here for mature is the same word form that's attributed to Jesus on the cross when he says, it is finished. Both words mean to be made complete. And so in the, in the life of a Jesus follower, it seems that there are these two aspects of completeness or maturity. The first is already taken care of on the cross, that Jesus has purchased you for himself. There is no more work to be done in your salvation. That is finished. And there is a very real sense that in our salvation, we are progressing toward looking like Jesus. You are being matured or being made complete in your life and in your walk with Jesus. And then Paul gets us, Uh, gets us to this really honest and vulnerable moment in verse 29. Look at the language Paul uses here. He says that he toils and he struggles. Now, toil is not a word that we use that much. What does toil mean? To toil means to be completely spent, to be emptied. Your energy and your willpower are drained from you. And then the word translated for struggle is really interesting when you dive into the Greek. When you look at the context of this specific word, you see that the word was specifically set aside in the culture to be used exclusively in the context of public athletic events like the Olympics. The word here is agonizomai, which might sound like agonize, right? Agony or to anguish, which means severe physical or mental pain, But for the Greeks, that word was set aside and used in the context of sports. And that's the picture that Paul wants to put in our minds as we share the gospel with people, as we live life in the church. It's this picture of an athlete that is struggling and sweating and breaking their body with the constant goal of working toward the prize. And Paul says that in the midst of that emptying and struggling that he depends on and receives his energy from God. And the picture that immediately came to mind for me here is Derek Redmond. Derek Redmond was a runner in the 1992 Olympics, and it seemed like he was going to destroy the competition. He posted the fastest time in the first round. He won the quarterfinal race. And in the semifinal race, 250 meters from the finish line, he tore his hamstring and collapsed to the track. The medical team rushed to meet him, assuming that he was done and out of the race, but he shoos them away, begins to try to stand and crawl and collapse toward the finish line. And then something amazing happens. Derek Redmond's father meets him on the track, takes his arm over his shoulder, and walks him to the finish line. Derek Redmond toiled. He completely spent himself He emptied all that he was. He struggled. He literally faced the Olympic odds that Paul is referencing here. And in the face of that complete exhaustion and unbeatable competition, Derek Redmond's father meets him on the track and carries him to the finish line. And I'm wondering if anyone else feels that way when it comes to the church. Let's be honest for a second. Can we be honest? Life in the church is difficult. Life in the church is hard. People come from all walks of life and they smell different than you, they look different than you, they think differently than you, they react to breaking news differently than you do. They have opinions on things where you didn't even know it was an option to think the other thing, right? It's exhausting. And when you are in that situation in the church where you have emptied yourself You have toiled and you have struggled and you collapse to the track. You are spent. Your heavenly father promises to meet you there and carry you and supply your every need. You see, this is an impossible task for us. Does does anyone here really feel fully confident in themselves that you can live perfectly with the church and carry the gospel to the whole world? No one? Okay, I just want to make sure. No one thinks that, because it's impossible for us. That's the point, is that we can't do that. God can. Brings you back to that Mary Slesser quote. The task is impossible for me, not for thee. Lead the way, and I will follow. When we step out of our own power and out of our own energy and begin to rely on God, it is a reminder for us that our dependence and reliance on God Not ourselves, is what brings us to the finish line. Paul keeps talking about this struggle as we move into Colossians 2, but his focus on the struggle shifts a little bit. When Paul talks about struggle in this verse in Colossians 2, 1 through 3, he uses a different word. And this word has less to do with your own physical exertion in a competition and more to do with meeting direct opposition or resistance. It's the result of someone causing strife. It seems that Paul is anticipating a direct pushback from the false teachers that he's calling out. And what is Paul's remedy for that type of struggle when you experience pushback from the world? The remedy is the church. We see in these verses that the hearts of those in the church are knit together, are encouraged by being knit together in love. Here's the takeaway for us. If you want to be made complete in Christ, we don't do that on our own. Following Jesus is not a solo mission. You must be with the church. That's why at North Point we push life groups so much. Do life together. Be encouraged by being knit together in love. You can bring unity and avoid disunity by being knit together in love. And sadly, as pastors, we see this all the time. That division and disunity in the church starts with isolation. That someone starts to pull themselves away from the church and away from community and they, end up, and they end up pulling away from God as a result of separating from the church. If you desire to be made complete in Christ, God says that you find that in the body of Christ, in the church. And so if you're sitting here and you think you're the exception to the rule, that you don't need to really be in church because you can experience God in other ways. God speaks to you through nature. That's all you need. God is telling you that you are missing something in your life. It's not to say that you don't experience God in nature. Of course you do. God speaks in amazing ways through creation. And if you want the full riches of God's wisdom and glory, that's found in Jesus. And the way that God has designed for every follower of Jesus to discover and experience that is in the church. And that is why the enemy, Satan, tries his hardest to attack the unity found in the church. It would seem that whatever this false teaching was in Colossae, that, that it attacked, it was designed by Satan specifically to attack the unity in the church through Christ. In verses four and five, we see this, Paul talks about this, that, and, and it's, it's obvious that this is not some kind of like obvious billboard false teaching, right? Like I highly doubt the false teaching in Colossae was God doesn't exist, right? Like they would have had scripture to point to and be like, ah, no, you're wrong, bye. Paul says that these arguments are plausible for the church to believe. Another translation here would say that these are persuasive or enticing speech, meaning that people in the church would hear this argument and think, you know, not only is that plausible, I actually like what you're saying. And we clearly have this same problem in our world today, right? False teaching, plausible, enticing, persuasive speech abounds. Teaching like this phrase, love is love. That's a phrase that's, that's made its rounds over the years. Love is love. What does that mean? It means you can love whoever you want, however you want, wherever you want, whenever you want, because love is love is love is love. But why do we know that that's a false teaching, Because when we look to God's word, God defines how we understand love. And in God's word, the phrase is not love is love. The phrase is God is love. You see how subtle that twisting is? With a small twisting and swapping of a word, you get a plausible teaching that we like. But we know that that teaching is not true because it's not founded and rooted in Christ. True teaching is rooted in Christ. But sometimes, in fact, many times in the church, it's not even the teaching that's false. It's the application and the elevation of the teaching that causes disunity and destruction in the church. It's no longer for you. It's no longer enough for you and I to identify with Christ. Now you have to align perfectly with my theology. I'm not going to call you a brother or sister unless you and I are in line perfectly on everything. We can just look back at all of the things that have caused the church to split over the last 2,000 years because the church decided to identify with Christ and a theological stance. And we create these fancy academic theological terms to justify and solidify our splits. Are you ready to play uh, theological bingo? (laughs) I'm going to throw some words at you. And all of these complex words represent a set of beliefs that separated the church Ready? Here we go. Theolo- uh, theology bingo. Continuationism versus cessationism. Baptism versus paedobaptism, baptism. Eschatological differences like post, pre, and amillennialism, or dispensationalism, or preterism, or partial preterism, or non preterism. We have soteriological differences like Calvinism and Arminianism. We have egalitarianism versus complementarianism. We have differences in hermodiology, ecclesiology, anthropology, paterology, pneumatology, and bibliology. Do I know what all those words mean? Absolutely not. But they mattered enough to some people to take the church that was united and knit together by Christ, men and women who identified each other as brothers and sisters and fracture it, because we elevated a teaching and made that more important than Christ. It's not to say that those terms don't matter. That what those words, those $5 fancy words, what they represent, it's not to say they don't matter. If we were to go through that list and define those terms, I would imagine that if push comes to shove, you would have some sort of stance on things like whether or not we only baptize believers or whether we baptize infants or whether or not uh, you have an articulated definition of sin or the authority of Scripture. And let me say this. That's a good thing. It's good to dig into God's word and desire to know him and and see how he works and how he's revealed himself. But the issue becomes when we identify more with the theology than with the person the theology teaches us about. And that is why I love North Point. Because at North Point, we have made our priority and focus clear that we just want to be on Team Jesus. If you are newer to North Point, uh, I want to share some things with you about the theology, the views and the workings of God that on the North Point staff and the elder team that we disagree on. And you might hear the term disagree and think like, ah, it's probably just like a minor disagreement. They're probably just disagreeing on things like the color of the carpet or whether or not the drum should be on this side or that side. And I bring those examples up because those are real things that have caused churches to split. There are churches that have split over the color of carpet. True story. No, at at this level of disagreement, we are disagreeing on things that are far more important than the color of the carpet or whether or not the drum should be on this side or that side because the drum should be on this side. We know that. It's obvious. The things that we disagree on, on the North Point staff and eldership, impact how we view God. So for example... Within the staff and eldership at North Point, there are deep divides and disagreements on how we would interpret terminology like predestination, election, and the sovereignty of God. And to disagree on that issue means that when we approach counseling with someone who is suffering, we approach it from two different sides. When we discuss the working of God in specific aspects of salvation, we disagree on how we would talk about it. Another example is that within the staff and eldership, there is disagreement on how we view the workings and supernatural manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And to disagree on that impacts how you pray, what you pray for, and the experience of God that you pursue. And the list of disagreements could go on and on. So how is it that in the midst of deep and important disagreement... That we are able to be fully united, to be knit together in love and encouraged by one another. You see, at North Point, we understand that you are not united with your brother and sister in Christ because you are on Team Baptist or Team Charismatic or Team Calvin or whatever other team is there. You are united by being on Team Jesus And we understand when it comes to the theology of Jesus and who he is, what he has accomplished, and what he will continue to do in the lives of his people, we are united as a church. Amen? Now let me be clear. I am not saying those disagreements don't matter. That they're not important. Or that denominational churches are inherently bad. That's not what we're saying. So let that be clear. The issue Becomes when you take a difference on something that is not Christ and you elevate it above Christ. If I can take us back to the analogy of of having our lives be like we're running a race in the Olympics, this is what I want to picture, what I want you to picture as we close. Picture that you are running cross country and that you're running on a team. You have a team of runners running cross country with you with the goal of running toward the finish line. And when you come across someone in your life, who shares a disagreement with you on one of these important but not as important as Jesus issues, I want you to picture that person as your teammate that is in the same race, running in the same direction as you, with the same goal as you. They're just running next to you. They're going to have a different perspective because they're not right in line with the lane you're running in. They're next to you. They look at things differently. And we also must recognize that there are going to be false teachers and teachings that are in the race with us. And their goal is to slowly edge you off course. The goal of the enemy is not to get you to turn around and run the other direction. That's too obvious. But if they can influence you and just get you to veer off just a little bit, then over time, you will grow to see less value in your church. Less value in God's word and less value in God himself. And the way that we avoid falling into that false teaching is by not alienating the person next to us because that teammate who shares a different perspective than you is looking at this false teaching and can tell you, hey, I know this looks enticing, but this is false. This will lead you off course. And so the takeaway for us is this. Be attached to your church. Be invested in the church because the church is designed to keep you on the track, running toward the prize, running toward Jesus. And ultimately, be attached to Jesus himself because there are true riches and wisdom and glory and hope and they are only found in Christ. And as we run this race, carrying the message of Jesus to every single person we encounter, you will fail. You will fall. You will tear your hamstring. You will be spent. You will be exhausted. You will collapse to the track. And not only will you have a teammate next to you who can build you up and encourage you, your heavenly Father promises to be with you, to meet you on the track, to be in the race with you, supply your every need and ensure that you reach the finish line. Amen? Let's pray. God, we just thank you for how good you are. God, that in in this race that we are running, God, that you are with us. God, that there's never been a moment in this race of following Jesus, of running toward the prize where you have even looked the other way. God, your eye is fixed on bringing your people to full completeness, to being made like Christ. God, we thank you that we can depend and rely on you and your goodness. God, we ask that you would help us with the commission that you have given the church to live united together and to reach people who don't know Jesus. God, would you help us as a church at North Point to be united with one another, to put aside differences, to understand that disagreement does not equal disunity, because unity is not founded on uniformity. God, unity is found in Christ and in Christ alone. God, I pray that you would give us a heart for the lost, that you would bring people to mind for us and that you would give us the boldness and confidence to reach people with the loving and life-giving message of Jesus Christ. God, we ask these things knowing that you are good and faithful and that you will ensure that we reach the finish line. Amen.